Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Happy 2021! Here we are, wow! Wowza, I never thought I'd see the day. Um, Look, we should do full disclosure. Yeah. We're recording this episode back in December. Uh, The reason being it's that time of year where life doesn't quite grind back into life uh, in terms of podcast and podcast guests the first week of January. So what we did, we anticipated this and we recorded a fantastic conversation uh, that I think you're really going to enjoy. Yeah, I think they are. I I think before we do that, we should sort of say in our defence, you know, we've got a record now of, of 172 weeks we're 172 not out we have not missed a week now admittedly i missed some weeks in the general election and you held the fort um but we're 172 not out aren't we yeah we'd never never missed a week so we like to make sure we've we got something pops up on your device every week can we keep going to a thousand i think so you don't want to break a streak do you wouldn't you like to be in the guinness book of world records for the longest unbroken podcast streak I wonder if you. I wonder if you've hit on something there. You don't want someone to beat you, do you, Ed? I mean, you're you're sort of opening up a whole new vista of com- competitive opportunities. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe maybe there's a record for releasing most podcasts in a day, for example. Yes, one every hour. Did you uh, did you receive a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records in your Christmas stocking this year? No, but I loved the Guinness Book of World Records when I was younger. I bet your boys would enjoy the Guinness Book of World Records, wouldn't they? That's a good idea. That's a good idea. If 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 Christmas hadn't passed, I would say that's a great idea for a present. Anyway, back to, to back to twenty twenty one. So uh, this is um, this this is somebody you uh, you know in real life a little bit. Yes, uh, Dale Vince. 
I mean, he's gotten had an extraordinary life and he's written quite an amazing book about his life as a new age traveler, founding Ecotricity, uh, running the world's first vegan football team. You know, it's quite a, a thing. He's now going to make diamonds out of carbon. I mean, carbon from the air. I mean, it's quite he's he's. He's an amazing character, and uh, I think people are going to enjoy this episode. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're delighted to be joined by Dale Vince, who is founder of Ecotricity and author of a, a, a fantastic book about how he did it, which in some ways is the most unlikely story. It's called Manifesto, how a maverick entrepreneur took on British energy and won Dale, hello. Yeah, how are you doing? Well, as I said, it's a, it's an incredible story of what you've built and how you've done it. And and in the book, you start by describing your time as a new age traveller, which was back in the 1980s. I wondered if I could just ask you a bit about that, because um, I, I remember there was a lot of coverage about new age travellers in the news at the time. Um what was what was that experience like, and and sort of how how did you come to that way of life? I think I I came to that way of life as a kind of um, serial rebel as a kid. Really, I, you know, I, I kind of uh, didn't fit in at school. You know, I, I would wear day glow coloured socks, but they weren't allowed, and you had to wear a tie and a blazer and. You know, rules for the sake of rules, I never really got on with, and so I, I found myself kind of clashing all of the time with authority. Uh, at school and uh, I remember leaving thinking it was the happiest day of my life like I just got out of prison and uh, and then you know I said about just looking for what it was that I wanted to do but uh, you know ever so quickly my my mother in particular was like you've got to get a job you've got to get a career and I you know I, I was like well I you know I just don't want to do that I want to have some time and and decide what it is that I want to do and I ended up uh, leaving home quickly found that I was marginalized trying to live in a town if I didn't want a job and to get onto that uh, kind of treadmill uh, or hamster wheel of life, uh, you know, because I didn't have money for bills and stuff. And uh, and then, uh, you know, I'd been to a couple of festivals and saw people living on the road and I thought, this is what I've got to do. So I got an old ambulance, I think for about 50 quid, uh, jumped in it and, um, and just hit the road. Never had a plan or anything, just thought I'd hit the road and try and find some people that are living this way and uh, and I'll live in a different way. Am I right in remembering that that uh, that that community was quite stigmatized? Yeah, I think we kind of provoked the ire of uh, what you might call the settled community wherever we went. You know, there's silly jealousy really over the fact that we might not have kind of road tax on our vehicles and they weren't perhaps MOT'd or something, and they felt that we were getting away with something. You know, whereas of course we had virtually no money and we lived a life. Uh, that they they absolutely wouldn't live in terms of uh, you know what we had materially, um, but they they were envious of that, and I think people felt threatened by us as a culture as well, and in particular I think the establishment felt threatened, which is what led ultimately to the Battle of the Beanfield. And Margaret Thatcher uh, wrote a speech that she never delivered at the Brighton Conference because of the bombing, but in it she named the the IRA, the unions, and the travellers as the three biggest threats to society. Uh, and this, you know, this is something that came out decades later, uh, and that uh, shows you the extent to which uh, we threatened the establishment. It was quite a thriving culture by then; hundreds and hundreds of people lived this way, and and we were looking for another way to live. You know, we just didn't accept 
the role that was given to us or, or the kind of normal way of doing things. And for people who don't remember, what, what was the Battle of the Beanfield? Because you, you, were, you were at that. So maybe tell us what it was and then uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, one of the biggest events in the calendar of, of travellers and alternative people, I would say, uh, was Stonehenge. Uh, it took place, I think, uh, June every year around the summer solstice. And uh, we'd been warned in the winter of 83, it might have been, I'm not really sure, uh, not to go by the police. A new thing had come out called the Public Order Act, which banned more than 10 people getting together or something, which is an incredibly draconian kind of restriction on, on freedom as far as we could see. And, and it seemed aimed at unions and at travellers and traveller camps and that kind of stuff. Uh, we went through that winter. We just got evicted from Molesworth, where we were protesting against the sighting of uh, nuclear cruise missiles. It was a, an amazing scene. It's mentioned in the book, but um, we uh, we were evicted kind of in a dawn raid by uh, the army and the police. More more squaddies than it took to take Goose Green in the Falklands. And Michael Heseltine dropped in by helicopter in combat fatigues and makeups, God, ready for TV. Uh, and it was, it was really surreal. <laughs> It was brilliant. And, and that, that kind of, uh, they created this huge convoy at that point, which was early, uh, early in that new year. And we hit the road and we kind of grew like a, like a snowball through the year. And then we headed off for Stonehenge, uh, and, and basically, uh, into the most incredible violent confrontation that you could imagine. Although we'd seen something like that with the miners, uh, you know, the year before. It was just incredible to find ourselves, um, as outlaws, people with no rights uh, at all, and and to find ourselves on the, on the very wrong side of the law, and to to see firsthand just what they were capable of when um, when they disregarded you completely. Dale, obviously, implicit in what you've said, it's that you is that you were already an environmentalist by then. Just talk to us about how did that how did that then come about? Because already by this point in your life. You're, you're caring about environmental issues, which obviously has a big bearing on what you, you later go on to do. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think that was with me as a kid because I, I know that my first kind of, um, the first thought I recall in terms of being uh, environmentally concerned was as a boy of probably 13 years old and I was leaving school one day on my bike and I was looking at the cars I could see on the road and I knew they had roughly 10 gallon tanks. And I tried to imagine how many there were in the country uh, and how much fuel they held between them and where it all came from and when it would run out. And nobody was talking about that. And it seemed silly to me because it had to run out. And as a kid, I, I like to kind of make things. I was a bit of an inventor, a builder of, of, of gadgets and things. And I used batteries to power some of them and batteries back in the day were very rudimentary they didn't last long they cost a lot of money and then you had to throw them away and and so I was kind of conscious of of the value of energy and uh, I could see how we were just kind of burning it up in cars and and you know wondered where it came from and worried about when it would run out and I carried that through my life really that concern and living on the road was about trying to find another way to live a low impact way to live you know and when I dropped back in after my 10 years on the road I, I just you know carried on doing the same thing but in a different uh, different way. Was that environmental mindset uh, common, common in the new age traveller community when you talk about thinking of different ways of living was environmentalism a big part of that? I think it was and, and more than that you know there's a kind of spiritual side to it a social side it was um you know, it was a kind of melting pot of alternative ideas, really. There was an awful lot of alternative thinking going on in, 
including in terms of energy, using solar and wind power, uh, not eating animals, for example, and, uh, you know, vegetarianism, veganism, all the alternative ideas really were in that melting pot. Let's get on to wind power and uh, let's fast forward into the mid-90s. Tell us the story of how you ended up building your first wind turbine in Stroud. Well, by the end of my decade on the road, I was using uh, little windmills to power my trailer um, and had some train batteries that I got from a scrapyard and um, it was all kind of Heath Robinson and I was having great fun but uh, I live I was living on a hill outside of Stroud in 1991 I, I'd been parked there for a few weeks and I saw the first wind farm in Cornwall the first one built in Britain and I, and I drove down to take a look uh, I thought they were just awesome machines I spoke to the farmer about it and I drove home and I thought you know, I could spend another 10 years living this low-impact lifestyle personally that I have, or I could drop back in and create a bigger difference, make a bigger change if I try to build a big windmill on this hill that I was living on. And I knew it was windy because I used a little windmill myself, and wherever you park, you know if you park in a windy spot because you're conscious of the amount of energy that comes in and goes out from your life. You know, you watch your meters and stuff. So I knew it was a windy hill. And I just started from there and thought, all right, I'll do that then. I'll just drop in and try and build a big windmill. And how does this boy who was, you know, the, the, the guy who was the frustrated boy at school, not liking rules and red tape, how did you then knock up against planning permission and arranging finance? It probably helped me, you know, to have the kind of approach and attitude that I have because at every turn... Um, I was told no, or it can't be done, or the planners weren't up for it, the grid company didn't want it. Um, but I wasn't interested in that, you know, I didn't let it bother me. I just carried on and I, and I overcome the obstacles one at a time. Uh, and it took five years. And finally, I built it on Friday, the 13th of December 1996. And uh, it was a great day. Take our listeners through how one wind turbine in Stroud in 1996 grows into this very successful company, Ecotricity? Yeah, well, just before I built it, probably 1995, I could see that it was definitely coming. Everything had fallen into place. I had the planning. I finally had the grid. I'd even raised enough money to build it through a different business that was linked to that, measuring wind for other people. And um, I, I knew that to build more windmills, I needed a fair price for the power. Um, and so I went to see the local power company, they were a monopoly at the time. If you wanted to generate energy, you had to sell it to them. It was called the MEB. And I went to see them and asked them if they wanted to buy some green energy. And they literally laughed at me at the idea. They said, you know, what's green energy? Who wants it? And basically offered a rubbish price because they could, because nobody else could buy it. And I left that meeting aware that the energy industry was just liberalizing. Uh, the one thing maybe that Margaret Thatcher did that, um, that I might be... Um, uh, happy off or happy with. Uh, I left the meeting thinking the only way I'm going to do this is if uh, I cut out this this difficult middleman to reach the end user people with this new thing, green energy. I'm going to have to start an energy company. So 1995, I did that. And um, Ecotricity was born in 1995, just before we built the women in 1996. Just because I think people will be interested, how does it get from just being formed into, you know, a really very kind of sizable renewable energy company? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, so our first windmill was 1996. I think our second was 1999. And just before that, 
this was Britain's first megawatt-class windmill as well, by the way, in 1999. It was a real groundbreaking machine with a viewing platform at the top by Sir Norman Foster, and the only one in the world that the public could climb, uh, which is really quite special. But just before that, in 98, um, we teamed up with uh, Thames Water. So we've been plugging away as an energy company, um, signing up generators, signing up customers. And we were growing quite quite strongly um, in this new field of green energy. And then we did a joint venture with Thames, which took us from like, um, I don't know, 100,000 turnover or something to uh, 50 million in, in one, one year. And, and that was just like mad. We launched it in London with uh, John Battle, the energy secretary at the time. Uh, we powered the Millennium Dome in, in 2000, it's one year of operation. And, um, you know, things are just really snowballed for and us. Th- was that from your own wind turbines, Dale, or from other wind turbines? Or how was that being generated, that power? Well, that was really neat because we did it from uh, sewage works in London. So Thames Water were turning sewage into electricity and we powered the dome with that. And there was a lovely standing joke at the time that when you flush the toilet at the dome, the lights got brighter. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the good good things about the dome. Dale, can I ask, how much was it sort of seeing an opportunity and thinking that the the world is changing and this this could be the way it's done and everybody should be doing it that way and I want to be part of that and how much has it been a, a runaway train um my, my approach to it is is to pursue what I think needs to be done I, I'm not really interested in trends uh, or trying to spot trends and, and be a part of them or something like that I mean I, I mentioned this I think in chapter one of the book it might look like I've been really good at spotting stuff that's coming and getting involved in it early, but it's not that way for me. When you look at energy, transport and food and the things that we do, for me, it's about sustainable living. I've long felt that modern life is unsustainable and quite soulless as well as a result. And so I've been pursuing these things because I think they need doing. And I'm just super fortunate that the world has actually come this way, um, probably egged on by the climate crisis more than anything else, which is causing us to have to rethink everything, how we power ourselves, how we travel and what we eat. And so I'm just fortunate to be, um, I guess, a, you know, a, a man of my times. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're going to come on to um, the sort of manifesto element of the book shortly before we do um just in the sort of life journey talk to us about forest green rovers um the the well the, the described as the greenest football club in the world i think it's the only professional vegan football club in the world um you became chairman in 2010 just talk to us a little bit about that yeah so forest green rovers is like our local football club ecotricity's local football club um and I'd never been there or watched a game or anything like that. But summer of 2010, I was reading about them in the local newspaper. They're, they're in financial trouble. They just avoided relegation because a different club had gone bankrupt. And they were teetering on the edge. And the guys reached out. Uh, I went to see them, watched a game. And I really loved it. They were, they were lovely people. It was a lovely place. And they said, look, we just need 30 grand to get through the summer for cash flow. And and I thought, look, it's our backyard. The club is 120 years old, big part of its local community. Why not? So we did that. By the end of the summer, uh, they were coming to me and saying, actually, uh, we need more than that. And actually, they needed quite a lot of help and money. And the chairman at the time said to me, around about October, I think you need to, you know, to be the chairman. And I was like, oh my God. I don't. I'm so busy. I don't need to do that. But uh, it was presented really as a quite stark choice. Walk away and see the club fall over or take responsibility for it. And so without a plan, I just thought, well, we'll do that. How hard can it be? We'll, we'll, uh, we'll run a football club. You know, we'll save it. And that was the beginning of this really amazing journey with Forest Green Rovers, which, you know, if you fast forward 10 years, we're working with the United Nations on a, a global program, Sport for Climate Action, which is about engaging the whole world of sport, reaching through sport to reach people and get them to change their lives to fight the climate crisis. And I'm an ambassador for that scheme. And uh, Forest Green has got an audience, a reach around the planet, which is just incredible. And the ideas uh, that were put into Forest Green are the ideas from Manifesto. It's about energy, transport and food and how we join that all up. And and we just, I guess, used football as a, um, as a new frontier, a channel or a platform. We knew that going into it, in the creating of this Green Football Club, we wouldn't be talking to the choir, preaching to the choir. It was a could be a very challenging audience, we thought, football fans. We found out it's not that challenging, actually. And, um, you know, the whole thing has just been an, a, a mad, amazing adventure. And talk to us about the um, sort of vegan element of the food that served at the grounds, the transition you made, because I think you, I think I'm right in saying, and correct me where I go wrong here, that you, first of all, it went vegetarian the food and then it went vegan or maybe it went straight to vegan but just talk to us about that and the engagement of the players and the fans and all of that yeah we did it over a period of i think maybe three seasons Ed. Uh, so the way it came about was um just just because i entered into it without a plan i just said all right we'll we'll save the club and then within days i found myself sat at the club and saw that we were serving this minced beef lasagna to our players and and i said to the manager uh, oh my God, you know, we, we can't do that. We got the chef over 
uh, you know, I couldn't be part of the meat trade and I hadn't realised because I hadn't thought at all about what it would involve, uh, you know, running a football club. So right there and then we agreed to take red meat off the menu. We did that first. We talked to the players about that from a performance point of view. And was there much resistance? Oh, no, completely not. No, the players are right up for it because, you know, they want any kind of edge that they can get in terms of performance on the pitch. So I would say they were the easiest audience. The Sun described it as the red meat ban, which was great. It dramatized it, gave us a platform. I enjoyed that. Um, And some of our fans didn't like it. You know, they were kind of angry. They felt challenged by it. They felt they were being dictated to. And we engaged in a conversation. We said, look, football is two hours per fortnight on average for a home game why not come and try a different kind of food to what you're used to and then we went out of our way to make really great food food that you wouldn't find at a football club and the bar is low of course in terms of food quality at a football club and you know our fans came they tried it they loved it and over three seasons we went from no red meat to no white meat to no fish to being to no dairy and ultimately being a vegan club. A lot of our fans have gone vegetarian and vegan. I mean, they tell me about it all the time. We've changed our fans' outlook completely. They're buying electric cars and solar panels. And one guy told me last season that he was even looking for battery storage for his house. You know, he's gone further than I have. I haven't got battery storage. And you know, I'm just so like impressed by that. But our fans, I like to say, haven't just tolerated what we're doing. They've absolutely embraced it. They're proud of our stance on the environment and the things that we do. And, you know, football fans are just like ordinary people. They are ordinary people. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk to them about these challenging topics that, you know, we need to change what we eat, for example. We've found them to be very receptive. The book is um, called Manifesto. Just before we get into the detail, talk to us about the sort of driving idea of of what you're advocating for like the country and the world when it comes to climate. Yeah, it's, it's been an organic journey for me. And, you know, the book kind of sets out the journey and what I learned and did along the way. And it culminates in chapter 13, which pulls it all together. But uh, basically, when I dropped back in to build the first windmill, part of the thinking was that the way electricity was made in Britain was the biggest single source of climate change. And now I thought that was a logical place to start to make a change by building windmills. Um, in the early 2000s, having made great progress on green energy, I thought, let's look for the for the next biggest sources of carbon emissions and found it was transport and food and the energy transport and food together made 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint and I felt that was a super empowering message because we all make decisions every day um, in in those three areas of life and, and that puts an awful lot of power in our hands and uh, gives us the power to not have to wait for governments and big businesses to act but we can make spending decisions every day it also shows us that we're not helpless in, in the scheme of things, that climate change isn't something so huge that we can't address it because it's actually driven by the choices that we all make every day. And so we set about tackling the issues of transport. We built an electric car, the Nemesis, then we built the electric highway, one of the world's first national charging networks for these cars that were not yet on the roads in 2010, uh, but are now big time. And then we you know, set about vegan, uh, vegan advocacy. And all of that uh, was really distilled into Forest Green, uh, which has been a brilliant platform for that. And Chapter 13 pulls it together, energy, transport and food, and it shows the the impact that uh, modern life has. And I think there are two big things that we need to change. We need to stop burning fossil fuels and we need to stop farming animals and eating them. And if you look at the, what these things, these habits cause, and you look at what happens when we stop doing them, it's not just... 
um, the planet that benefits it's human health and it's also economic the you know it's economic madness to to do what we what we currently do talk to us about the balance between government's business and individuals in driving action on the climate crisis yeah i think it's really important uh, i see this uh, i see us as the three big sectors of society really you know people businesses and government and and i think that people increasingly are concerned about the climate crisis and they want to see something done and they want to do something themselves businesses notice that and they're creating the products and the services that people need to live a greener life so that kind of symbiotic relationship is working i think where we're falling down is with governments. We, we just don't have a government that gets it, but they have the biggest levers of all. Taxes, subsidies and regulations, they decide what we can do, what we can't do and what we must do. And it's the most important part. And our market today, our economy today is skewed towards the bad way of doing things, fossil fuels and intensive animal farming. We, we spend £10 billion a year, for example, subsidising fossil fuels, which is more than we spend subsidising renewable energy. So one of the policy recommendations is just transition that £10 billion into renewable energy over five years. It will take five years at £2 billion a year. It won't cost us any more money, but we'll be putting the money into, into the right thing. So I think governments tend to follow, not lead. They, uh, businesses also tend to follow what people want because the, you know, if they see a demand for something, then they'll create the products for it. But there's a great symbiosis between the three of us, people, business and government. And um, that, you know, that's how I see it. I just think that what we're missing most is a government that gets it because they can change the way the market works. Even if you look down at the household level at the moment, everything is skewed against the the good way of doing things, renewable energy, for example, if you want to put solar panels on the roof of your house, you will pay 20% VAT. If you want to burn coal in your house, you will pay 5% VAT. These are the kinds of anomalies that we have to change because they support a bad way of doing things, an uneconomic way. And when you look at food, farming animals to feed ourselves is inherently uneconomic. We have to put more in, in terms of value, calorific and, and monetary, than we get back out. We've made meat absurdly cheap with subsidies and grossly um, inhumane farming practices uh, in order to eat more meat than we've ever ate historically, which is causing all kinds of diet and health problems and NHS costs. Everything, everything about it is wrong. And if we just wind it back and eat simply, uh, we'll eat more cheaply and more healthily. So uh, all of this is accessible to us, and it isn't actually for people that have more money. It's actually going to be cheaper for us to do all of these things in energy, transport, and food to do them properly. Will you tell us a bit about your latest venture? It's called Sky Diamonds, and and you plan to grow diamonds manned from mined from carbon dioxide in the sky. Which I mean, that just sounds mind blowing to me. What 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 is th- this idea, and what drew you to it? I had the idea probably 10 years ago, and I was thinking about geoengineering. You know, it's this idea of, uh, of making changes to the environment on a kind of planetary scale so that we could pull carbon from the atmosphere, because right now all of the focus is on stopping emissions into the atmosphere, rightly so, because there's too much going in. But at some point, we've got to deal with the fact that levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are higher than they've been for millions of years and they're too high. So we have to pull some back out. This is the basis for my thinking. And it occurred to me that getting it out of the atmosphere is a big enough challenge, but unless we lock it up into a permanent form of carbon, we've only done half the job. And 
the most enduring form of carbon that we know of, of course, is a diamond. And I was just struck by the thought that wouldn't it be amazing if we could pull carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into a diamond as a really permanent form of carbon capture and storage. About seven years ago, we began the R&D journey to explore this, how it might be done. And about two years ago, we started making them. And we've been perfecting the recipes since then to make gem quality stones, which we've achieved this year. It's a great example of 21st century technology. It's not low carbon or zero carbon, it's negative carbon. And we take something we have too much of, carbon dioxide in the air, and we make something that we quite like to have. It's a great example of how we can live a green life without giving stuff up. And are they, they're on sale now, are they, Dale? They're not on sale now. They will be uh, early next year, but we're making them and we're just kind of organising ourselves to, to get commercial about it. It's, it's just coming out of R&D, you could say. We've made probably 300 carats or something like that, which is quite a lot of stones. Could this disrupt the entire diamond trade? Well... As we launched the idea, we, we called for the end of diamond mining, actually, because it's a, it's a terrible Ter- business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the holes they dig are so big, you can see them from space. And uh, obviously, the human cost is big. The environment cost is big. They dig, we've commissioned a study, they dig 1,100 tons of rock to make a single carat of stone and produce half a ton of greenhouse gases for that single carat of, of stone. Our argument is we no longer need to mine the earth. We can mine the sky. And that's what we do. And have you got anyone to do like a Pepsi challenge, uh, a sky diamond and uh, a conventionally mined diamond side by side and spot the difference? <laughs> you can't spot the difference because they are diamonds and it takes a lab to be able to see the difference. And, you know, the difference is a grown diamond is more perfect than a, than a mined diamond, but it's at the microscopic level. And so I was talking to somebody the other day about this. It's really interesting. It, it means that actually... Uh, grown diamonds can be used for different things, Te- technology that you can't use with a mined diamond because of microscopic flaws. It's very interesting, but um, they're, they're anatomically identical other than that to the I mean, they are diamonds. Uh, they just come from uh, a different process. That'll be my Christmas present for you in 2021. <laughs> the, the book is, I would say, very upbeat. I mean, are, are you an optimist? I think yes. And, and because lots of people look at the climate challenge and think oh god you know we've got so much to go in such a short space of time you're are you saying you're optimistic but the challenge is politics what how how do you see it uh yeah i mean i am optimistic as a person um i kind of just like to get on with things and i don't worry about whether we can or we can't do something or worry about the prospects of failure for example you know i just don't think that's a kind of right way to to live but when i look at the pieces of the puzzle it all fits perfectly together. We've just got to unwind the kind of modern way of doing things. The mass burning of fossil fuels and the intensive farming of animals, they are the two root causes of the climate crisis. All of the health crises uh, that we face, the, the chronic illnesses that we face in, in older life and that kind of stuff, and also it's economic madness. And so the pieces of the puzzle are there. When we go plant-based instead of eating animals, for example, we can free up 75% of UK farmland, which is 50% of our entire country. So when you look at a plan for how we get to zero carbon, there's going to be maybe 5% that's very difficult to reach. Everything else we can reach relatively easily. That 5%, we can absorb in indigenous uh, offsetting schemes uh, You know, by rewilding our country. And that 50% land that becomes available is way more than we need. But we get to create a beautiful country, again, where wildlife can uh, can thrive you know over the last 50 years if you look at what farming has done it has taken that from us wildlife and so all of the pieces of the puzzle are there i'm absolutely confident that it can be done and, and actually should be done 
Um, and I do think that it's just um, it's just about leadership, really. But but your your message is we've got the technical ability to do this in the time we need to to meet the challenge to change. It's about the political will and imagination. Yeah, I would say so. I would say we've got the technical ability. It's economically more sensible. It's better for our own health and our own quality of life. Um, and yeah, all we lack at the moment, I would say, is leadership that says, do you know what? Let's be bold. Let's make these kind of changes. You know, the kind of stuff that we saw at the end of the Second World War, for example, where we came together as a society in Britain, we formed the NHS. You know, that kind of common endeavor that the war was, that coming together with a common purpose, uh, you know, that bled into uh, society and politics in, in, you know, the post-war years. And it led to some great things, some great changes in our country. And that's what we need to do. We need to see climate change as the existential threat that it is and uh, and come together and just make some big changes. And actually, on that subject, I would say the virus crisis has been really instructive for us because... It's shown us two things. One is that it's absolutely affordable to tackle the climate crisis. We've thrown 300 billion this year at the virus crisis, and that's 10 years of a zero carbon budget for our country. And we've made the most unimaginable changes to the way we live through lockdowns and restrictions. We only need a fraction of the lifestyle change and a fraction of that sum of money to fight the climate crisis. So what it's shown us this year, this virus, is that we're more than capable of doing what we need to do. Well, that is a very good and important and optimistic note to end on. Uh, The book is Manifesto, How a Maverick Entrepreneur Took on British Energy and Won. Uh, Dale Vince, um, it's a fantastic book and a fantastic story, and you're a brilliant advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. 